Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. Let's turn together in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. If you're visiting with us this morning, um, we're going to be picking up where we left off. We've been for uh, some time now working our way through this wonderful letter of the New Testament. But by way of review and reminder, I want to make a couple of comments about this letter. We don't know exactly to whom this letter was written, but it's important that we remember what we do know, and that is that it was written to a group of Christians that were once Jews. Wherever they were, um, wherever they met, whatever their size, they had come out of the tradition of Judaism and the legalism and the, uh, the, the, the rituals there, the, 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 the tradition into the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles had come and preached the gospel to them and they were given faith and they believed and they understood with their minds and they believed in the Lord and they expressed this faith. And so they come out of that and found salvation in Christ. So we don't know exactly who wrote it or to whom it was written, but we do know that they were Jews. So it's written into the context of Judaism. That's important for us to remember as we continue, particularly here in Hebrews chapter 11, because that necessarily means that it was also written into the context for the original readers of suffering. So you can only imagine being a Hebrew among the Jews, ethnically, nationally, growing up in Jewish homes, growing up in the Jewish tradition, having had this tradition imparted to you and given to you and your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents and their parents and so on and so forth for thousands of years handing this tradition down to you, you can only imagine how difficult it is and how not well-received you would have been in your family and in your community to then turn and reject that tradition. So just practically, I think you can feel and sympathize something of their Difficulty, though, I think we can't understand it completely. They would have endured some degree of suffering. They knew what it was to have been written off by their family and by their friends, to have been ridiculed because of their ridiculous faith and belief system. They would have known what it was to be mocked, like we saw with Noah, those you know, trusting in God, building an ark when there had been no rain. And everybody's like, what are you doing, Noah? You're a, a fool. And well, I'm, God said it's going to rain, so I'm trying to get in out of the storm. And what is wrong with this guy? They knew something of that kind of mocking, culturally speaking. They understood something of this difficulty, this struggle, this oppression, this suffering. It's important that we see that and that we're reminded of that because it gives us then an understanding of the main theme of the book of Hebrews and its entirety, this entire letter, then is written to these Jews who are now under suffering, perhaps considering going back to Judaism. Circumstances have become difficult. The waters have become turbulent. And perhaps this faith in Jesus thing is not all that it was cracked up to be. Maybe I'm not really going to be saved if this is all I have. I'm not making any sacrifices. I'm not doing all the things that everyone around me is doing and I'm suffering and they think I'm crazy and they don't understand. And you can only imagine in their minds the battle, the spiritual and mental battle that was taking place. So many of these Jews then have become to be tempted to go back into Ju- to Judaism, to, to turn their back and to shrink back the language of Hebrews from faith in the Lord Jesus Christ only, maybe in part, maybe in full, and to return to Judaism and the legalistic tradition there and the ceremonial law and all of 
what that entailed, to look to those things for salvation, not to Jesus Christ only. That's why you get passages like Hebrews chapter 11. Remember the very end of chapter 10. If you look at, say for example, uh, let me find the, the, like in verse 39, he's encouraging them to, press on in their faith to continue in hope. Well, you can go back and look at chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to go into the holy places because of the blood of Jesus, by this new new and living way that he opened for us, through this curtain that has now been torn, that is the flesh of Christ, since we have a great high priest in the house of God, let us draw near then in full assurance of faith, all the way down to verse 23, He says, then let us hold fast the confession of our hope. That's his encouragement in the previous chapter, which concludes with this in verse 39. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith. So so he's, he's admonishing and encouraging and imploring these Jewish Christians to press on in their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as Hebrews has made clear, only Jesus will do. There's no system, there's no sacrifice, there's no ritual, there's no habit, there's no priest, there's no nothing that can do for you what Jesus has done. None of them will bring you to God. None of them were the godly for the ungodly, the righteous for the unrighteous. None of them were the culmination of God's redemptive plan for the history of his people. None of them. And the point of this book is that it's all Jesus or nothing. That to embrace even just a bit of the Judaism that you once held to is to reject Christ completely. And he's saying, let us not be those that shrink back and turn our back on Christ. But let us be those that persevere in faith. Who live in faith and die in faith. And through that faith are brought to God and made whole. That's the encouragement of the, book of, of the whole book of Hebrews. So that you come to the end of chapter 10 with that encouragement there. We're not of those that shrink back, but we are those who have faith and by it persevere and preserve our souls so that then you get chapter 11, right? This historical list of the fathers of our faith, the fathers of these people's faith, trying to help them to see that even the Jews were saved by faith. That's important for them to see, isn't it? If they're Jews that have come to faith in Christ that are now wondering if it's only by the rituals of Judaism and by the law keeping that they're going to be saved. It is crucial at this point then that the author argue clearly that no, 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 you need to understand even the fathers of your Jewish heritage were only brought to God and made whole because of their faith. The truth that As soon as Adam fell and all of his posterity plunged into unrighteousness and a fallen state, no longer enjoying a blessed relationship and blessing with God as did Adam that we could maintain by keeping of the law. Immediately after the fall, what we find is Genesis 3.15, the promise of grace. That after the fall, it's not only that no one ever was saved by keeping the law, it's that no one could have been saved by keeping the law. You say, well, what, what were these Old Testament saints? Faith, what, what did they believe in? What was their faith in? Their faith was in the promise. 
God made a promise. And God intends to keep that promise. And for those who have faith in the promise, grace is sufficient. So he's telling these Jewish Christians, look, you need to understand that even the fathers of your Jewish heritage, they have come to God only through faith. The promise of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Messiah that would come and ultimately destroy the serpent and his desires to thwart God's plans for redemption. It's, it's very important that we see and understand. He begins and he talks about Cain and Abel at the very beginning in the family of Adam. He moves on to Abraham and Abraham's posterity. Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. He moves on to Moses and he recounts the faith. And if you remember what we said about the beginning, the first two-thirds of chapter 11, is that it's teaching us a spiritual axiom about faith, isn't it? That it begins by understanding. Understanding what? genuinely being convinced that God, the unseeable, is real. And if God is real, then his promise from Genesis 3 is sure, right? So believing that God is and believing necessarily then that his word is to come, that leads those convictions, that assurance, chapter 11, the very beginning there, faith then is the assurance of those things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, When we believe those things to be real, truly and really, more real than the things we can see and touch, then it leads to conviction, and those convictions lead to commitment, understanding, to conviction, to commitment. What we saw last time is that commitment is a commitment that goes against all circumstances. All logic, it it defies all logic. A myriad of examples given where the people of God in the Old Testament, they looked around like Moses' parents. Remember, and all of the children around them were being slaughtered, and they said, how can this possibly be your plan for redemption? And they trusted God, and they were obedient. When when we look around and we see, we, we begin to wonder, God, are you really there? What in the world are you doing? I don't understand how this can possibly be part of the plan. When it doesn't make any sense to us, this faith leads to the kind of commitment that follows God when we don't get it that follows God and trusts in him when we can't see what he's doing and when we don't understand and when circumstances don't seem to assure us that his promises are to come, but we're convinced that he is real and so is his word. And so then we come not only to see that that commitment is against all logic, but we see that 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 faith leads to commitment in the face of terrible odds and suffering. That's where he ends. And friends, that's crucial for these people because it's, it's on account of their suffering that they're struggling to continue to believe. And he says, let me share with you, let me remind you of the suffering endured by and through faith of the believers in the Old Testament. So what you have in chapter 11 is kind of a historical overview of the Old Testament. It's pretty amazing. Everything that's here can be found in the Old Testament, explicitly so. He's recounting the stories and the names and the figures and the events all in order to show and encourage us by their faith. So what we're going to see again this morning, similar to last time, is that this is essentially a one-part sermon. It's a a one-point sermon that from chapter from verse 29 down to the end of the chapter, it is holding before us the faith of God's people that persevered and endured through great difficulty and suffering. And that true Christian faith that saves is faith that follows God even when it costs us everything. 
That's the point of these verses. Stuart Oliott, who I love to listen to, he said, he said this, he put it this way, that it is the testimony of the fire of faith that cannot be quenched. It cannot be extinguished. It cannot be put out. Take from me my life. My faith will be in God and in his promises, which are sure. So we're going to begin reading then in verse 29, yeah, verse 29 of chapter 11, and we'll read down through verse 40, and we'll bring this wonderful chapter to a conclusion. Let's pray before we read it. God in heaven, we long now for your word. God, we need it. And so we pray that you would give it. We recognize that our sin makes, makes it very difficult for us to read and understand and know to garner truth from the things that we study. But God, by your spirit, you can impart truth. And so we pray that you would illumine our minds and our hearts, that we would rightly understand the truth of your word, that from it we would see you, that we would see the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we would see our need for him. In his name we pray, amen. Beginning in verse 29, it says, So by faith, the people, that is the Israelites, crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And what an incredible overview here. You can see that the pace picks up in verse 29. The author has been laboring a little more slowly through chapter 11 with Abraham and the patriarchs and Moses and the story of the Israelites and his parents and what was going on there. But now you can feel the beat begin to really escalate. He doesn't take even as much time as he did with them because he just begins to recount uh, almost as if you can see him just imploring these people, how much do I have to tell you? I think that's the force of what he says there that I, I love that in verse 32. And what more shall I say? Time won't even allow me to go into all of these things. The point is not, oh, I don't have enough time. His point is, what more needs to be said? The, the point is, what I've told you is sufficient. 
And if I was going to tell you about all of God's doings in the Old Testament and all of his deliverances and all of his sovereign providences that were working together for the good of those that trusted in him, we would go on and on and on and on and on for days. That's his point. He wants to encourage them and he begins by telling them, reminding them. Remember, he's just been talking about Moses the faith of his parents who sheltered him, Moses' faith to identify himself with the people of God rather than with the luxuries of Egypt, to take his place in the people of God under the reproach of Christ rather than be exalted among the Egyptians. Talks about the Passover there. And then it's after that that Moses leads the children of Israel out of Egypt and then they get to the Red Sea. They get to the Red Sea. And they're looking behind them at the Egyptians that have now changed their mind and said, no, we don't really want you to go, so we're going to chase you down and take you back. And so one of the greatest armies of the known world at the time is hotly pursuing Moses and the Israelites who are just walking out. And they can't go north because of the bad lands that await them there and the enemies and foes that encamp there and dwell there. They can't go south because of the woodlands that are there. They can't go back because... The army is pressing hard against them. The only way for them to go is the direction God had taken them, and it is to the Red Sea. And so God said, press on. And based on the mere word of God and obedience, trusting in him that he's real and that his promises and words are sure, Moses acts and he lifts his hand against the waters. And just like that, the waters are held up. I wonder what that day would have looked like, friends. Well, I don't know whether the water stood up in a giant wall or whether it was just cut off and stopped right there. I have no idea. What I do know is that the Bible is clear that they did not walk across in mud. This is a miracle that many miss. As upon dry land, there are distinct words in the Hebrew for hard, parched earth. And when it talks about in Scripture the type of land upon which the Israelites tread, it is the desert, parched, hard land. Friends, that's astonishing. Have you, you, look, we're water people. We live in the south on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. Most of you have put your foot down and touched the bottom of the bayou or the bottom of the creek or the bottom of the river and been, you know, repulsed from that, right? You know, as it squishes around and kind of stinks if you bring it up to the top. You can only imagine if you drained it that instant, how long it would take before you could walk your donkeys and your camels and pull your carts with your children across that huge expanse of the Red Sea. God not only holds up the water, instantly he changes the land to be dry. Hard parched earth so that even the wheels of their buggies did not sink into the mud. That all of the Israelites, women, children, donkeys, everything you can think of, they passed across safely. Friends, that's the first thing, man. What we find is that through their faith, God led his people to safety. God led his people to safety. And it was not so. Because the moment that Egyptians thought, hey, that looks pretty safe, it became treacherous, didn't it? God delivered his people onto the shore across. And as the Egyptians gathered their armies in pursuit in the middle of that sea, God released the waters upon them. You, I, listen, you can only imagine the, the, the ground probably went right back to being mud and they couldn't go anywhere. What a miracle that day it was that through their faith, God led his people to safety. You see the same thing in verse 30, don't you? By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down. You know the story. 
Moses is now dead by God's command because of his sin. Joshua has now taken uh, the leadership role in Israel. They're embarking on the overtaking of the promised land of Canaan that God has declared to give unto them. And he's given them explicit instructions about how to take the land and route all of the enemies out of it. So they get to this place, Jericho. There's all these Jerichonians and they are obstinate. They will not leave. They've got a fortified city with a giant wall. So God tells the Israelites, go march around it and blow your trumpets. Excuse me? And here they come, the Israelites. Day one, they march around it and do just what God said. Nothing happens. You can see the the, the folks of Jericho looking over and taunting and mocking the Israelites. Saying, listen, when your plan doesn't work, we're going to slaughter you. We have an army that you can't withstand. Day two comes. They do the same thing. Nothing happens. Mocking ensues. Threats come. Day three, day four, day five, six days. Nothing happens. They trusted God. God said, and so they acted. True Christian faith had led to commitment, even when it didn't make sense, even when they could not understand, even when maybe it put them in a dangerous position. Friends, by their faith, God led them to safety because you know what happened on the seventh day? God flattened that city. And listen, he killed everything in it. Nothing was left except for Rahab. You see her next. What a deliverance of safety this is. It's pretty interesting. Here we have a prostitute listed, right? By faith, Rahab the prostitute. She's mentioned in James. She's mentioned in Matthew because of her works, because of her faith or trust in God. Here she is, a Jericonian. She's got the Israelites coming upon them. They send the spies in to Jericho. What's the problem? Well, the problem is twofold for Rahab. Number one, the spies come in and they seek refuge at her inn. Because they're trying to hide. They're not supposed to be there. Well, the authorities get word that the spies of Israel have come in to spy out their city. So they come and she chooses who she's going to be with and who she's going to identify with and who she's going to serve. And she trusts in God and so identifies with the people of God. She instantly separates herself completely from all that she had in terms of safety inside the land of Jericho at risk of her life. Right? You remember what happened? They came and asked her and she hid the spies and deceived the authorities and provided and helped to make a way of escape for them. And then you remember what happened when the Israelites came and when the walls fell. It's interesting that she's spared. You know why? Because where was her house? It was in the walls. It's a story of safety. That through their faith, God leads his people to safety, even when danger abounds. Friends, it's good news that a prostitute's listed here. You know why? Because what it means is that your past is not beyond faith. Even prostitutes can trust God and identify with his people. Even prostitutes in the Old Testament could trust in the reality of God and the sureness of his word and his promise, and they too could be led to safety. Friends, that's good news for you and I because we have hearts like prostitutes. We wander and we're faithless. So the first thing I think we see here is that by their faith, God leads his people to safety. The second thing that we see, and these are going to be intermixed because you could argue safety for all of them or vice versa. But we're going to see three other things. That by their faith, God led his people to victory, to joy, and perseverance. He says, well, what more can I say? 
Time would not allow me. It, it, nothing more needs to be said. But if I were going to tell you uh, an even brighter picture, an even broader picture of all that God did in the Old Testament, I would tell you about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. Those guys are judges. And of David and Samuel, kings and prophets. And I would tell you that how through faith they conquered kingdoms. They enforced justice. That immediately makes me think of King David, who ruled with justice and righteousness over Israel, Samuel tells us. We've just studied that together. Who obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions, right? You can look back to the Old Testament, you think about who? Daniel the lion's den. Or quench the power of fire. You think about his comrades, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that said, no, king, we will not bow down to you. And yeah, we'll go into this fire and maybe we'll be saved. Maybe we won't, but we will not serve you because our trust is in God. And through their faith, the fire did not harm them. And God came and visited them and led them to safety and victory. They escaped the edge of the sword. Friends, I'm just giving you single examples that come to my mind through the Old Testament. How many times did we see King Saul pursuing David's life with what? The sword. Longing to put his sword to the neck of David to get him out of the picture. And it would not be. Why? Because David trusted in God. Yes, he hid in caves. And no, he was not perfect. But in the midst of all of his failure, God was faithful. God was faithful to his people and God was faithful to his word. So that he escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weaknesses. They became mighty in war. How many unbelievable stories like Jericho do we have all through the testimony of the children of Israel in the Old Testament. Of when they went out to battle with things like pitchers of water and flaming torches and trumpets. Friends, if we were going to arm up and go to battle, none of us are going for pitchers of water and trumpets. God made them mighty in war. Think about the little David that based on obedience and desire to follow God and be used of God in his kingdom goes out to meet the giant Goliath with only a sling and a few stones. As he's mocked and derided, he says, no, God will deliver you into my hand this day because the battle is his. Made them mighty in war so that they put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead. Immediately we think, you know, of Elijah and Elisha, who restored women's sons to them, who had perished and died and literally resurrected them to life, and they were restored. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. The others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. I think he's probably talking about the prophets there. Though the Bible doesn't record much of that, the, the tradition and the historical uh, accounts tell us that many of them were beaten and sawed in two and burned at the stake and tortured. We certainly know that when the prophets came to deliver the message God gave them, they were often dismissed and despised and rebuked for that message. He's talking about the prophets there. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated. What's he talking about there? That they, they were despised and put out. They, they were made to be vagabonds. They were in their own homeland, yet they were strangers and foreigners. They would not be accepted. 
They did not have clothing. They were totally destitute. They could only live in the holes they could find. They could only clothe themselves with the hides they could acquire. They had nothing. All because of their faith. Suffering, friends. They wandered about in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. But what does it tell us about these guys? These judges. I mean, my goodness, when you go back up to the list there, you think about Gideon and his dealings with the Midianites. Barak, Samson. We think about Samson and the Philistines. Man, these stories. Just unbelievable instances of where by faith God commended these men and he led his people to safety and he gave his people victory and mothers received back their dead and were brought to great joy and prophets who were despised and forsaken and sawn in two persevered. You say, well, they weren't very victorious if they were sawn in two. Oh, but they were. They were, friends, just like with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Even if the fire kills us this day, God will be faithful. God doesn't promise us calm seas upon which to sail. He promises us a safe harbor in which to land. That's the promise of the Messiah. That this world can take everything from you, but they cannot take Christ. They cannot take his righteousness and his obedience and the sacrifice that he's made on your behalf. Led to joy and victory and perseverance. All of these things for the people of God through faith. Friends, it bears... It begs the question for us this morning, doesn't it? Are we willing to endure such struggle? None, none of us in here have ever been sawn in two. I pray that in God's care, that would never be the case. None of us have ever been made to be vagabonds in our own home and land. None of us have been destitute to the point of sheep and goat skins and hides and caves and mountains and deserts. God has not called us to take up our trumpets and pitchers of water and head out into battle. Now, friends, I don't mean to diminish our suffering. That's not my point. We, we suffer differently in God's providence, and our suffering is real, and it is difficult. And like the Jews of the, the recipients of this letter, these Jews, the suffering leads us to wonder, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, I don't understand how this is a part of your plan. Friends, the question, though, remains. Look at what he says in verse 39. And all these were commended through their faith. They continued to believe in the face of the sword and the saw and the lion and fire. And friends, we are so quick to jump off the ship and to abandon our faith in Christ. See, I think as difficult as the language of 39 and 40 might seem, I'll help us with it in a moment. I think it's really a two-pronged point that is being made the overarching point is to tell them that, yes, through, the faith, through their faith, these Old Testament saints, they trusted in the promises of God for redemption unto salvation. That, yes, their faith was unbelievable and astounding and God used it in a mighty way, but it is not superior to yours. The first thing that he does is he shows them that Yes, they were commended because of their faith. And I think on the one hand, that probably would have been a bit of a slap in the face to them as it should be to us. Here you are considering returning to Judaism. For what? 
because you're being ridiculed by your family and friends a little bit and because they, don't, they think you're kind of crazy because you're trusting in Jesus? For what? You can only imagine as he recounts this list to them and they begin to remember the stories that they would have known more intimately than we ever could. About the fathers of their heritage that believed in God unto death. And he's telling them, friends, if you're going to have true Christian faith, it has to be like this. True Christian faith that will not be extinguished, that will not be put out. That will be willing to give up and sacrifice everything. That's, that's true Christian faith. But then I think the other aspect of it is, look at what he says. Though they were commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised. This is reminiscent of what we've already seen in verse 13. Go back to eleven thirteen. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Verse 16, so that as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. He goes on. They did not yet receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. All he's saying there, friends, is that although their faith was astounding, their faith is not superior It's not as if their faith is a picture of what we ought to be. We need to just be Old Testament Christians. He's saying that in the plan and the purposes and the redemptive historical mind of God, that that the way that's unfolded is that, yes, they had faith, but no matter how astounding their faith was, and yes, their faith in the promise led to salvation and reconciliation with God, but they did not even get to enjoy seeing Christ come. God and his purposes reserved that for a people that was yet coming. You can only imagine if he could, at the end of this, you know, explanation of the significance and the substance of their faith, say, yeah, and then he gave them, you know, Christ came and fully accomplished all that had been promised. And they received the promise and period, it was done, it was over. And then all of us that came after would be like these second rate citizens of the kingdom. You see what he's saying? No. He's telling these Jews, don't desire to just go back and be an Old Testament Christian. Don't desire your Judaism. Don't desire to have the faith of Abraham. God has reserved something better even for you. Why? Because you've seen Christ come. Friends, how much more should we be encouraged to trust in the promises of God? Because we have seen them acted out in history. They trusted in the promise of a Messiah that they never saw. No matter what struggle we face, no matter how difficult life is, no matter the circumstance that surrounds us, friends, we can look back to the cross. We have the completed word of God. How dare us shrink back? So the letter, the words of this letter, we are not of those that shrink back. They begin to ring in our ears. It reminds me of 1 Peter, where we were reading just a moment ago. Listen to what he says, beginning in chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Then you go down to the end, verse 19. What's the encouragement? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Friends, that's what everyone in chapter 11 of Hebrews is doing. It's a list of those people that entrusted themselves to God's care. That's the title of tonight's sermon. It ties together so well. If you look at Matthew chapter 5, we've been preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. You can just listen. You don't have to turn there. But just listen to the language of what we're going to be studying tonight. 
Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you're going to eat, what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Go down to verse 30. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not then be anxious. As the Gentiles are, and they seek after all these things. For your Father knows that which you need. Seek first then the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do you see? The testimony of faith is the testimony of those that are willing in the face of great danger, the face of death and the point of the sword and the burn of the fire. The testimony of true Christian faith is a commitment that leads to trusting God in the midst of all of those things. In closing, I think about the opening lines of the old hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. A bulwark never failing, our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Friends, if you look to Christ, perseverance and joy and victory and safety will be yours. Friends, if you look to anything else, you're sure to perish. Under the weight of the struggle and under the weight of your sin. But there is hope in Christ. My prayer for our church, my prayer for everybody in this room, my prayer for my life and my family is that we would have a true Christian faith that is built upon understanding that God is real, and if that's true, so are his promises. That we would then be led to conviction about those promises and their assurance. And that that knowledge, understanding, and conviction would lead to commitment when I don't understand and when great dangers abound, that I would trust and obey. God, may that be the testimony of our hearts trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for your word now. Thank you for the testimony of this chapter and the encouragement that it brings for us to continue believing in Christ. Lord, we realize that the difficulties of life are uh, profound. That the difficulties of your providence are often substantial. We acknowledge that there are secret things which belong to you that we cannot understand that your plan is not ours, that your ways are higher than ours, that your mind is beyond our comprehension. And so, God, we pray very simply that in the face of great danger and trials and suffering and difficulty, mockings and rebukes, even to the threat of death, if it comes to that, God, that you would give us a faith that perseveres. God, may we be those that live in faith and that die in faith and are commended and brought to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.